0: 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am you. Not 100%, but I am you. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of Serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast is part two of Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, though I know most of you have, I recommend going back and listening to it. In it, I go into great detail about his family history and how he could have very well inherited a violence gene, as well as his alcoholism from his recent ancestors and we dived into his childhood environment, really getting into the science of possibilities as to why he went, well, dark side. In this episode, we are going to get into what happened after high school. Now it goes without saying that this is going to be graphic. Those that know about him know exactly what he did, and there really isn't any need in my opinion, to just continue to spew the gore and the guts into such finite detail as most people who talk about him do. His apartment, some of his Polaroids, all of that stuff is but a Google search away. However, this is still going to be graphic. There's just no way around it. Okay, here we go. So after high school, Jeffrey was completely alone. His father, Lionel, was living elsewhere, and by this point, he was dating a woman by the name of Sherry, whom he would go on to marry. Joyce, his mother, had taken his little brother, David, and moved to Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, near her family, though she would go on to California. And, Jeff was now a full-blown alcoholic. He used booze to help him distract himself from the compulsive thoughts that had plagued his mind for a few years now. As I said in part one, the intro to this podcast has Jeffrey saying, quote, From about 15 years on up, my thoughts were basically unshareable, unquote. He had violent sexual fantasies involving having a completely submissive man all to himself, someone he could possess absolutely, that he also wouldn't have to have any relationship with or any real interaction at all. He said in his Stone Phillips interview that he didn't know how to tell anyone, so he just didn't. He had, at one point, waited for a jogger in some bushes with a baseball bat to run past his house, but lucky for the jogger, he had skipped that day. He fantasized about picking up a hitchhiker and holding him hostage. Then, about a month after graduation, he was feeling incredibly lonely and discarded, and he was driving and saw a young man hitchhiking. The young man was 18-year-old Stephen Hicks. Jeff's fantasy had now become a reality. He pulled over and offered to give him a ride to where he was going, but invited him to come to his house first so that they could drink some beer. And, of course, Stephen agreed. Now, once they were at the house, they sat, they drank beer, they listened to music, for hours. But, as Jeff knew was an inevitability, Stephen began saying he needed to go. Jeff was desperate for him to stay, so he grabbed one of the hand weights that his father had bought him and struck Stephen in the head twice, knocking him unconscious. Then, in his inebriated state, Young Jeff strangled Stephen with the middle of the weight until he was dead. Jeff then removed Stephen's clothes. He pleasured himself over the body, then went to bed and passed out. He awoke the next day and decided what he must do with the remains. He drugged the body under the house into the crawl space. He dismembered it. He then put the parts in garbage bags and buried them in a shallow grave near his house. After a few weeks, Jeffrey dug the remains back up. He removed the flesh from the bone, then dissolved it in acid, flushing it down the toilet. He then took a sledgehammer to the remaining bones and tossed them randomly out into the woods near the house. After this, he was horrified at what he had done, and he vowed to never let it happen again. So, having the house completely to himself, he threw the occasional drunken, drug-fueled party. During this time, Lionel had been trying to call the house to speak with Jeff and David, but was getting no response. In Lionel's book, he stated that, in August of 1978, he realized that he was not getting any response when he called. No one was answering the phone. So, he took to calling every single day for a week to talk to his boys, and nothing. So, Lionel started driving past the house, and after three consecutive days of not seeing Joyce's car outside, He felt he needed to stop and check on his sons. On this particular day, he had his girlfriend Sherry with him when he pulled up to the house. And while Sherry stayed in the car, Lionel got out. He walked up to the house and he knocked on the door. Jeff answered, only opening the door about halfway, and he was acting rather guilty. Lionel asked where Joyce and David were, but Jeff didn't respond. So as any concerned father would do, he peered around Jeffrey into the house and he noticed there were some other people inside, so he stepped around his son to find a group of teenagers walking around acting as though they were on some kind of drugs and he ordered them to leave. He again asked Jeffrey where his mother and brother were and finally Jeff told him that they had moved out. Quote, you mean she's not coming back? Unquote, Lionel asked. Jeff just shrugged his shoulders and was reluctant to answer any more questions. At this point, Sherry had also come into the house and as Lionel and Sherry were walking around, Lionel noticed the refrigerator was not working and there was very little food. The living room coffee table had a pentagram drawn on it. Jeff later admitted that he had attempted to hold a seance to speak with the dead. Lionel felt horrible that his son had been abandoned because he hadn't known that Joyce and David were gone. So he and Sherry moved back into the house and at first Jeff seemed relieved. Though Sherry was this whole new person freshly introduced into his life, she later said that he was very kind and helpful, perfectly pleasant to her in every way, but it was not to last. One day, Sherry found Jeffrey extremely intoxicated in his room and called his father to come home. Lionel said that he was shocked to find his son in that state, and Jeff told him he drank, you know, mostly out of boredom. So Lionel set Jeffrey up to start college at Ohio State University, but he knew his son really wasn't interested. Sherry wanted to do what she could to lift his spirits and get him excited for college, and she took him shopping for a whole new set of clothes for his fresh start. And it was really obvious that Jeffrey liked her very much. Then, when it was time, he packed his bags to go to college and live on campus. Lionel reluctantly admitted that once Jeff was out of the house, he had a sense of relief, that his son's blank, lifeless expression made him uneasy, and he truly hoped Jeff would find some stimulation and happiness while away. And at first, Jeff really did try his best to improve his attitude, but his grades proved nothing had changed. So his father told him there was really no need for him to return to school after the first semester, and Jeff was visibly relieved. He had apparently resorted to selling his own blood plasma to help pay for his drinking habits at school. So his father, like all parents do, told him that he had two choices, go get a full-time job or join the military. Lionel offered to get him counseling for his very obvious alcoholism, but Jeffrey refused. So. Jeff joined the United States Army in January 1979. He was stationed at Fort Sam Houston in Texas and trained as a medical specialist, something that would come in rather handy later. After completing boot camp, he visited his father and now stepmother, and David was there, and they were all so impressed by how much he had changed. He was sober. And his face had life in it, you know, he smiled broadly at them when he saw them. Then it was off to be stationed in Germany. He trained as a combat medic and was described as a, quote, average to above average soldier, unquote. Two soldiers would later come forward, though, saying that Jeffrey had drugged them and raped them repeatedly. Keep in mind, guys, back then, anything to do with homosexuality in the military was a no go. In March 1981, after being in the military only two years, he was honorably discharged, though he was lucky to get that, as his drinking had been the most contributing factor. They gave him an airplane ticket to fly home or really anywhere he wanted to go. But he was, of course, too ashamed to go home to Ohio to his father. So he decided to fly to Miami, Florida instead. He was now 21 years old. Now, while in Miami, he actually got a job at a deli. He was trying again to prove to himself that he could make it on his own. He rented a cheap motel room and he did make an honest go of it but he blew nearly all of his paychecks on alcohol. Soon, he was kicked out of the motel and was forced to sleep rough outside near the beach while he kept his job at the deli. So, as Jeffrey is landing in Miami, Lionel had received Jeffrey's belongings from the military as well as his discharge papers, but had no clue where his son was. Then, a month later, he got a call from Jeffrey saying that he was in Miami, but he was safe, he was sound, he was working. But then the phone calls that Jeff made to his father became increasingly flat until he started calling asking for money. Sherry told him that she would not send him money, but she would be more than happy to have an airplane ticket ready for him at the airport to come home. So Jeff agreed. And at first, things were great. He happily helped around the house and displayed a very positive attitude. But he continued to drink, and he found it difficult to get a job. Soon, he was arrested for drunk and disorderly due to being kicked out of a bar, then refusing to leave the property. And then when the police arrived, it took three officers to be able to physically restrain him. In December 1981, Lionel sent his son to go live with Catherine, his own mother, and Jeff's grandmother in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, folks, Jeffrey absolutely adored his grandmother. They really had a bond. He went to church with her, he was a huge help to her around the house and he found employment as a phlebotomist, who is a person who draws a patient's blood. He had started attending AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, meetings. His grandmother even reported that a young lady at church had her eyes on Jeff, much to the delight of his father. This respectable and comfortable existence lasted for about a year. But he was eventually laid off and was unemployed for another two years, surviving off of the money his grandmother gave him. In August 1982, he was arrested for exposing himself to a crowd of people, including children. Keep in mind, he was drunk. After this, he got a job at the Ambrosia Chocolate Company, working overnights six days a week, getting Saturday nights off. So, one day, while he was visiting a local library, he was approached by a man who slipped him a note. Confused, he opened it, and it said that the man wanted to perform oral sex on Jeffrey. This excited him. But he didn't take the man up on the offer. What this did, though, was awaken the part of his mind that he had long been trying to bury. Though never truly gone, this brought his dark, violent sexual fantasies to the forefront again, and this is when he began going to the local gay bars and the bathhouses. And for those who might not know... A gay bathhouse is quite literally a commercial place where men can meet and have casual sex with other men. At this time, Jeffrey also got his hands on a male mannequin, which he took to his grandmother's house to fondle and pleasure himself over. And of course, it was just a matter of time before she found out. It had been six years now since Jeff's discharge from the military. His grandmother called Lionel and said she had discovered the mannequin. She could not for the life of her understand why he had it. So Lionel spoke with Jeff over the phone to ask about it and he said that Jeff was completely calm. He said he had taken it from a store just to see if he could get away with it that he had liked the clothes on the mannequin. His father demanded he return it to the store, but Jeff said he had already discarded it. So, not knowing what else to do, Lionel considered the matter satisfied, but apparently Sherry said that there was something very wrong with the whole situation. So, his father visited him, and they had a chat about Jeff's future yet again. And again, Jeff nodded amicably, stating his father was right and that he would try to do better. Lionel left. He was doing the best that he knew how to do for his son. Then Jeff's grandmother called his father again, stating she had found a gun under Jeffrey's bed. Again, Lionel called and Jeff explained it all away, saying he had bought it for target practice at a shooting range. Then another phone call. Jeff's grandmother had decided to go downstairs to speak with Jeff, but he stopped her, stating he wasn't dressed. Later, she saw another man who appeared to be drunk with Jeff, stumbling and staggering, trying to walk. Jeff explained that the man had been an acquaintance who had had too much to drink, so he allowed him to sleep it off in a chair in his grandmother's basement. So at this point, Jeffrey was visiting the bathhouses more and more. He very much enjoyed the atmosphere, but he didn't enjoy that his partners wanted to be, how do you say, active participants. He wanted them to be completely submissive, no talking, no moving. He said later in interviews that he began unconsciously training himself to view these men as objects of pleasure instead of people. He began buying his lovers drinks that he had put crushed up sleeping pills in, then raping them while they were passed out. At last, he was getting the sensations he had always fantasized about. Only, these men figured out pretty quickly what he had done to them and complained to the management, and Jeffrey was kicked out. He developed a reputation, by the way, there were people around these clubs who knew who he was and were pretty leery of him. So he resorted to renting hotel rooms. The now 27-year-old Jeff met Steve Toomey in a bar, and the two hit it off immediately. He asked Steve if he'd like to go back to his hotel room, and Steve agreed. Jeff's plan was to drug Steve, then rape him while he was passed out, but he had allowed himself to get very, very drunk, and when he awoke the next morning, he found Steve's lifeless body nearly hanging off of the hotel bed. Jeff stated his forearms were bruised and sore and that Steve's chest was also bruised and beat in, and he did have some blood coming from his mouth. He later said in interviews that he had absolutely no memory of killing Steve, but that he knew he had. He left the room, he purchased a large suitcase, he put Steve's body inside. He then took it back to his grandmother's house into the basement where he left it for a week. Now, after another phone call was made from his grandmother to his father, stating she had opened the garage to drive her car in and as she got out, she was overwhelmed with this foul stench. She asked Jeff, who explained it away as a dirty cat litter box, but she knew that was not it. Lionel called his son, who quickly explained that he was just back into his old hobby of using acids to dissolve the tissues off of chicken carcasses. Jeff dismembered Steve and put the pieces into garbage bags, save the head. He managed to put Steve's remains out in the garbage, which was picked up. Then he preserved the skull to use as private stimulation after, we'll say. After he broke the skull up and disposed of it, Jeff stated that after this, there was no going back, that he was absolutely lost. He let the darkness take over him completely. He liked tall, lean, athletically built men, and race was not an issue, as opposed to people later stating he targeted black men from a racist perspective. He had no racial bias. It was just as simple as their build, according to him. He wanted to lure these men to his grandmother's basement, drug them, rape them, then strangle them, only he couldn't make himself kill them unless he had been drinking. He had to have that buffer. So, two months after Steve, Jeffrey met a 14-year-old Native American teen who prostituted himself outside of gay bars. Jeff offered him money to pose nude, then took him to his grandmother's basement where he drugged him, he raped him, and he strangled him. He disposed of the remains in the same manner that he had Steve's. Again, another phone call from his grandmother to his father about the putrid smell she could not explain coming up from her basement, but she knew that it had something to do with Jeff. Again, Jeff explained the smell away, stating he had picked up a dead raccoon off the road and had experimented on it his father felt that this was not the truth but what other evidence did he have two months later he lured 22 year old richard guerrero to his grandmother's house offering him money to spend the night with him he did the same to him as he had done to the last two victims Only he had sex with the body after the young man was already dead. This was Jeffrey's introduction into necrophilia. By this point, his grandmother had asked him to move out. She rightly suspected of what kind of men he was spending time with. She also could no longer take the unexplainable odor coming from her basement, So he got an apartment, but this is not his famous apartment. His next intended victim was drugged and abused, but he got away. Jeffrey was arrested the next day and charged with second degree sexual assault and enticing of a child for immoral purposes. This boy was in his teens. Jeff received five years probation and one year in the house of correction, but was released just to go to work. Jeff was then forced to move back in with his grandmother. When his father found out, he said he was outraged. There was no denying that Jeff had some serious issues, and Jeff assured him nothing like that would ever happen again. Now this is crazy, during the small window of time between his arrest and the conviction, he met 24-year-old Anthony Sears, who went back to his grandmother's house with him. He drugged him, he strangled him, he had sex with the body, then disposed of him in the same way as the others, except, disclaimer, disclaimer. He kept the head and the uh, genitals, which he put in a jar of acetone, and he kept it in his locker at work. Now, this is also where, during his father's visit to go to court with him, he was up at his mother's house and Lionel found a small wooden box with a lock on it. He questioned Jeffrey, who became increasingly tense and agitated. Jeff refused to open it so Lionel went to get a tool to pry the box open but Jeff stopped him he told him listen there's pornographic magazines inside I don't want to upset grandma he later brought his father the box with the key opened and showed him the magazines inside Lionel ordered him to dispose of those magazines before they upset his grandmother and of course Jeff said yes I will Now, what was actually in that box was a severed head. I am inclined to think that it was Anthony Sears's whom he took to work in the jar, but I couldn't find that that was specifically the case. So Jeff was, you know, quote, released early, and this is when he rented his infamous apartment on the seedier side of Milwaukee. The rent was cheap. And there were plenty of shady activities going on in the area to keep him I guess you could say somewhat safe in his new hobby he even brought the jar home from his work locker Lionel and Sherry visited Jeff in his new apartment and to them all looked good Jeff opened his fridge to show how clean it was but Lionel noticed that he had bought a small freezer Jeff said it was so that, were there a good sale, he would stock up on different food items. I mean, it seems logical. But he wasn't in his apartment long when he lured 32-year-old Raymond Smith home with the promise of $50 for sex. He put sleeping pills in his drink he poured for Raymond, then strangled him. He then got his newly purchased Polaroid camera out bent and contorted his body into these really odd positions and then took photos of it he then took the body to the bathroom where he took his time dismembering taking photos during the entire process during christmas jeffrey went to his grandmother's house where lionel and his brother david were as well at this point jeff was 30 his brother 24. Side note, we often lose sight of the fact that he did have a little brother who was most certainly grown by the time Jeff was caught. There is home movie footage of this day, you can find it easily. His father had brought a camcorder with him and filmed Jeff sitting in this chair petting his grandmother's cat lovingly. For the unsuspecting eye, he looks chipper happy, nearly content. It is brought up that he looks thin and he blows it off saying he needs to eat better, but that going for fast food was just so convenient. But during this time, his parole officer commented that he seemed anxious and depressed. He told the officer that he was unhappy with his life. Jeff later said he tried desperately to control his need to kill, and he managed it for five months straight. But in early 1991, he lured 19-year-old Errol Lindsay to his apartment. He drugged him, but he decided to try an experiment. He drilled a very small hole into the side of his head and poured some kind of acid into it. Much to Jeff's surprise, Errol awoke later, complaining of a headache, so Jeff strangled him. The experiment was to see if he could create a, quote, living zombie that he could control and use as he wished, but without having to kill him. But as you know, it had been unsuccessful. Four other victims had met their fate in the same way. So, after killing so many people in this apartment, of course, at this point, his neighbors in the apartment began to complain to the management about this horrible smell that had begun to emanate from his place, as well as these strange and troubling noises they heard, such as a chainsaw. When asked, Jeff explained that, you know, his freezer had stopped working and some of the meat inside had spoiled. He also said that he had had some fish in his beloved fish tank and they died. So he promised to clean everything up. He would make it all right. Then Jeffrey met the younger brother of the victim that had escaped him that he had been arrested for. You know, I do not know for sure whether or not he realized who this teen was, but regardless, he lured that boy back to his apartment with the promise of money for some photographs He drugged the teen's drink, he waited for him to become unconscious, then tried his drill to the head experiment, putting acid into the boy's head, then took him to the bedroom. Now, on the floor next to the bed was a previous victim's body still laying there. Jeff drank some beer, he laid beside the teen lovingly stroking him and listening to his heartbeat. He then got up and left to go purchase more beer. While Jeff was gone, the teen woke up enough to get out of the apartment and stumble outside and he was completely naked. Two women found him and called 911. That call can be found on YouTube if you would like to hear it. The cops came just as Jeffrey was walking back with his purchase. saw them and he immediately walked over. He told the police that the teen was his 18-year-old lover, that they had just had too much to drink. Now, the women pointed out that the teen was bleeding from his rectum as well as his head, but for whatever reason, the police allowed Jeff to take the teen back to his apartment. Jeff then promptly killed him. He Began keeping entrails and other innards in his refrigerator and freezer. His freezer was full. He bought this blue barrel with an airtight lid and he stored torsos inside. And during all of this, he was missing work and he found out that he had been effectively fired from the factory. He was killing so frequently, it was all becoming a blur. And yet he could not stop himself. On july twenty second, nineteen ninety one, Jeffrey met and invited thirty-two-year-old Tracy Edwards back to his apartment for drinks and company. Tracy happily agreed to go. Once inside, Tracy immediately noticed a horrible smell. As he was trying to determine what it was, Jeffrey slipped a handcuff on one of his wrists and asked him to come into the bedroom. Tracy was looking around and he noticed pictures and posters of nearly completely nude, muscled men on the walls. On the TV in Jeff's room was the movie The Exorcist Three. Jeff then pulled a knife on Tracy and in an attempt to distract him, Tracy unbuttoned some buttons on his shirt. Tracy said later that Jeff seemed to glaze over and he began watching that movie, rocking back and forth, chanting. He then put his head on Tracy's chest. He listened and told him he was going to eat his heart terrified tracy asked if they could go back to the living room where it was air conditioned and jeff just distracted i suppose let go of the handcuffs it was at that moment that tracy punched jeff in the face and ran out of the apartment he then flagged down two police officers who followed him back to the apartment of course, Jeff let the officers in as Tracy began to tell them what Jeff had done. Jeff said the key to the cuffs was in his room and he'd go get it, but one of the officers demanded he back off. The officer then entered the bedroom and opened a drawer and there, staring him in the face, were Jeff's collection of Polaroids of young men alive, dead, dead and every stage of mutilation in between. He exited the room, in shock no doubt, held the pictures up and asked Jeff if they were real. Jeff snapped and began to physically fight with the officers, but they were able to subdue him. It has been said that Jeff made really strange kind of whining noises in defeat. Now, I'm not going to give you a laundry list of detailed information about everything they found in his apartment. That has been gone over at nauseam. Needless to say, the detectives and the hazmat cleanup crew were completely bewildered. No one had ever seen anything as grotesque and vile as this. The medical examiner later said, quote, it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. In Lionel's book, he states that he attempted to call his son on several occasions prior to July 22nd. But, quite literally, the day after Jeff's arrest, while his apartment was being analyzed and cataloged, Lionel called, And finally, someone answered. This is what Lionel said about that call. Quote, the phone rang several times before someone finally answered it. At the other end, I heard a man's voice, but it wasn't Jeff's. Is Jeff there? I asked. Jeffrey Dahmer, the man asked. That's right. No, he's not here right now the man said in a guarded voice as if he was being cautious about something where is Jeff I asked he's not here the man repeated still speaking very guardedly well who is this who is this I'm Jeff's father I could hear something catch in his breath you're Jeffrey Dahmer's father yes I told him where is Jeff well your son's not here right now Well, where is he? Someone will call you, Mr. Dahmer. Call me? About what? Unquote. Lionel was told a homicide detective would contact him soon. He thought at first that something horrible must have happened to his troubled son, but the man on the phone assured him it was not Jeff. So, Joyce his mother found out by way of a phone call from a friend. She stated her friend didn't want to tell her what the actual issue was, only that Jeff was in big trouble and she needed to turn on the news. Now guys, I do not want to discount the shock and horror that absolutely none of us can even remotely imagine his mother experienced or his father, no matter what kind of person Joyce was. I want you to know that when people figured out she was his mother, she was asked to remove his picture from her desk. Then her desk was moved to an area in the shared office that was not visible to most people and certainly not the public. She had gone back to school and was at this point a licensed counselor herself. With that said, in the book she took part in, Quote, the silent victims, the aftermath of failed children on their mother's lives, unquote. she immediately begins to say everyone blamed her. She said it was an example of gender bias. She said she waited for Lionel or David to call her, but they didn't. She said she contacted Jeff's attorney, who she said acted surprised and, quote, I didn't even know I existed. No one had bothered to tell him Jeff had a mother, She said she was labeled the mother of the monster. She said that when she finally visited him in prison, he told her he wanted to share every minute detail of what he had done to his victims. He told her he hadn't wanted to hurt anyone, and he made sure none of them suffered, that each had been unconscious. She rants that everyone blames her and that his father was completely let off the hook. She said, quote, It baffles me why he was allowed to continue on with his life in his hometown, surrounded by supporting friends and relatives. Why am I being held solely responsible for Jeff? Why? Lionel was cruel, demanding, and vicious, unquote. She said that she suffered, quote, grievously. As I told you before, she states that it probably would have been better if she had never married, never had children. She says that she laid down beside Lionel and produced, and I quote, a family of sleepwalkers. She refers to David as her baby, who holds a very special place in her heart and then goes on to say she seldom hears from him, and hasn't seen him for years. You have to wonder why. But regardless, Jeffrey openly confessed to every single murder. He hoped that in his openness about his crimes and how he felt might help authorities be able to better predict and stop future serial killers. He also said that he took full responsibility for his crimes and that blaming either one of his parents was wrong. There is some debate about whether or not he actually cannibalized any of his victims, but this is how I look at it. He certainly didn't lie about the gory details of his crimes or any of his victims. Why would he lie about this? On November 28, 1984, Jeffrey and two other men were cleaning a bathroom area alone. One of the inmates took a 20-inch metal bar and beat Jeffrey, mostly in the head and face with it, to near death. Jeffrey was found still alive, but he died an hour later. The inmate, Christopher Scarver, stated he had killed him because God had told him to and because allegedly Jeffrey was making body parts out of his food and putting ketchup on it to simulate blood. Christopher also said that Jeffrey did not fight him. He allowed him to beat him to death. Then Jeffrey was cremated against his mother's wishes, but in accordance to Jeffrey's, and his ashes were split between the two parents. Unfortunately, his brain was not preserved for further research. Jeffrey's mother died from breast cancer in November of 2000. As of 2017, Lionel was still alive, but I could not find any super recent information about him. Catherine, Jeffrey's grandmother, lived long enough to know exactly what her grandson had done, but died just after. And as for David, well, it's anyone's guess. It is reported that he changed his name and lives in anonymity. He flat out refused to be interviewed or even be on camera after his brother's crimes came to light. Lionel and Sherry spoke to Larry King and said that he has a career and a family, including two children, and that he was doing well and he was happy. Though I have to wonder if his children know who their uncle was. So that's it. That's the whole story. And I just don't even know how to sum it all up for you. As we explored in part one, Jeffrey's maternal recent ancestry showed us that there was severe enough mental illness that his great-grandfather had to be committed to a mental hospital. He was also severely alcoholic. His grandmother, Joyce's father, was a very hypersexual individual who was constantly pawing at his wife, and he too was a violent alcoholic. I also told you about Dr. James Fallon and his work with violent psychopathic brain scans as well as looking at genes involving the inherited violence. He explained how it can only be inherited through the mother and this is why mostly men are violent serial killers, one X from the mother and one Y from the father, whereas daughters get two Xs, so that second X tends to dilute that, if you will. I also spoke about how extreme trauma has been proven recently to live like a signature on our genes for possibly two generations. On the other side of the coin, I didn't find anything from Lionel's bloodline that Jeffrey might have inherited, but I certainly don't have every detail. I don't want to point the finger at Joyce, though. She could not have possibly helped any genetics that she passed on to her son, Should that have even been the case? She can't be blamed for that part of it, of course. It is reasonable to assume she suffered at the hands of her father and she did mention he was horrible. But what I take from this entire situation is that, regardless of what Joyce said about Lionel, He worked to understand his son and blamed himself from nearly every angle. He didn't take responsibility for his son's crimes, but he, from the moment he noticed his son's crippling shyness, was constantly questioning himself whether or not he was being an effective parent and openly admitted to spending too much time at work. Joyce worked to point her finger in every direction away from her that is to say she couldn't deny that she spent time herself in a mental hospital and was prescribed many medications for all of her ailments and the things she said about being a mother and that her children were sleepwalkers and so on it is hard to not roll your eyes at her drama but again none of us were there so I don't want to be too harsh so the question is could Jeffrey have been saved could some level of intervention past everything the people who loved him tried to do have kept him from being a serial killer for me I'd like to think so but I just don't know so tell me, what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at Serial Underscore Killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. My website is SerialKilling.Squarespace.com and consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of time to do these, but I do love it. And thank you so much for listening. I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I appreciate that. Thank you and have